0: Hello, we have returned. Welcome back to the Comics Course, a offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, as a podcast lecture series. Um, I, I'm bad about remembering to do this routinely, but I'm Professor Hamby. You can get me on Twitter at Prof Hamby. I'm trying to be more active there, but... It's going slow. I'm not a natural social media person. The website is thecomicscourse.org, which I promised updates on like a week ago, but I was reading and didn't give a damn and didn't do them. So I'll try to do them tonight. The podcast can also be grabbed directly uh, at comicscourse.captivate.fm. We're also on all the major services, except Spotify, because fuck them and their racist asses. Um... Yeah, I know they took down episodes of Joe Rogan saying nigger repeatedly, um, but it's kind of like too little, too late, you know. Now, I'm going to make it clear. Now Using a... Go ahead. Them taking it down after their money is being threatened doesn't mean anything. And episodes across years. But I mean... Where they, just, where they thought it was fine until... There until money was threatened and people threatened to delete the app and stuff. And then they were willing to do it. And let's be clear, he was not using this to talk about the nature of the word or how it's been used. He was using it because he thought it was funny. Which it isn't. No, it's, it's a pejorative term that has got a very specific history. And while I'm a big proponent of the idea that ideas are problems, not words... The simple fact is that word is tainted by how it's been used so much. And yes, when Red Fox uses it, when Eddie Murphy used it, um, it it was used for comical effect. When rappers like Ice-T used it, it was used to create a specific effect. A white guy sitting there saying, those niggers, well, it's not the same. It's... at its absolute best it's in poor taste and it's probably at least a bit racist itself which it was right now note I am using the term here because it was used it's it's a point of discussion Um, I I would never use it like he did Uh, in fact I think the only way I can foresee myself using it on the show is if we cover books like *Incognito*, where it is used in the story Um, And we need to talk about the context of that. Uh, But but it's not a word that I think has a place in uh, normal discourse, at least for white people to use. Um, Now, I will say that I have had close associates who were African-American. And when I was young, you know, we... Oh, God, I remember being a kid and listening to Eddie Murphy's Raw. And he would, you know, use the word... It was hilarious, and I'd use the word with my friends, but they knew me, and we had a close social relationship. Mm -hmm. I would never randomly walk down the street and say to, you know, uh, uh, a black passerby and go, hey, what's up, nigger? I mean, that would earn me a beating, Uh and justifiably so. Mm -hmm. Um, So context matters. Mm -hmm. It matters a lot. Uh, and, And... You know, even though I used it with my friends, we were also kids. I mean, as an adult with black friends, I probably would not use it. So anyway, uh, if our talk right there about social justice and, you know, the power of the N-word and all that is kind of a big deal for you, um, you're either going to love or hate the rest of our episode. So... I I didn't introduce her, but she's already spoken. Say hello, Rowan. Oh, hi. Um, She's happy because her iPad is actually charging, because my gimpy, weird workaround is actually working for it. And she's like, that's magic. You really do hate it when I come up with solutions like that, don't you? I mean, you kind of have mixed feelings because you're like, yay, it's working. And then, but there's this sort of, you know, like disdain, like, Why? Why? And I can see it in your eyes. You see nothing in my eyes. I see your soul. I don't have one. It's just eyes. Well, you do. Technically, it's in a box over there. You really should pay more attention to the papers you sign. Anyway, speaking of signing papers and taking your soul. Which means I don't have one if you took it. Well, you do. It's just on layaway. Um. We're going to talk about Holocaust stories, because we talked about uh, Mouse last week, and I intended for a midweek episode, but you know, midweek episodes only happen uh, if I get around to them, and I didn't get around to it last week, so we're going to do it now. And we're going to talk about other graphic novels related to the Holocaust, and that might be of interest to people. you make us sad again. I'm going to try not to make you too sad, but we are talking about the Holocaust, which isn't exactly a lively, happy, chippy topic where we dance around in the tulips with bare feet and go, Wee! I wonder why. (laughs) Because it's the freaking Holocaust. That's why. It's horrible. Oh, my God. Um, Now, but part of why we're talking about this is that there are people who are Holocaust deniers. And that comes up in the course of this. Imagine just denying history. Right. And, And their arguments are rubbish. Uh So the first one we're going to talk about is For Justice, the Serge and Beat Klarsfeld story. Now, Serge Klarsfeld um, was a child during World War II and the Holocaust, uh, French, I believe. And he and his wife, Kate, Kate, Beat, Beat, I keep wanting to call her Kate, Kate Klarsfeld. I like alliteration too much, but it's Beat. Uh, Serge and Beat became known as Nazi hunters They tracked down Nazis, some of whom became officials in the new uh, German regime post-World War II, because even though they'd been Nazis, they knew what needed to be done to run the country. Um, Some of them were hiding in places like Argentina, and they basically made a career of trying to gain acknowledgement for things that happened, as well as extradite and prosecute Nazis when they were found in hiding. Now, there's been some controversy. You know, they did things like yell out uh, in assemblies and get arrested um, for German politicians who had served the Nazis. It turned out that they took money from the Eastern German Stasi, basically secret police, to help destabilize things. Uh, which they did not see as a conflict because even though Eastern Germany was associated with Russia and it was the middle of the Cold War, they felt like getting justice for the Jewish people was more important and not letting these hypocrites hide. Which I think is fair. Right. Um, interesting characters. I do think the book glosses over some of the complexity of some of the things they've done. Um. It is definitely meant to be a positive story about them, and I suspect they may have had some editorial control over it, but still, their lives are fascinating, and their work was noble, and far more to it than just being Nazi hunters, a phrase which, by the way, Serge Klarsfeld has said he was never personally very comfortable with, Um, but they've done a lot, uh, uh getting acknowledgement. They've published a book of all the names they could find of people that died in the Holocaust, Uh, all kinds of stuff. So, fascinating figures worth reading about for their political involvement with the repercussions of the Holocaust in the decades after World War II. And for the Holocaust deniers... They're not upset because of parking tickets. The Holocaust happened. Get the fuck over it. Now, this gentleman, Michel Kishka. He wrote a book called Second Generation, The Things I Didn't Tell My Father. Michel Kika is interesting. He's a cartoonist. He was born and grew up post-World War II. He is not a Holocaust survivor in any way, shape, or form. However, his father, Henry Kishka, was. In fact, Henry Kishka was a very, very well-known activist in the Jewish community post-World War II. He was the only person from his family to survive the concentration camps. I believe he was uh, in Auschwitz. He was so well-known. That guy we just talked about, Sergei Klarsfeld, Mm -hmm. he wrote the introduction to Henry Kishka's autobiography. So, I mean, we're talking, he was an educator who went out to educate people about the Holocaust and what happened. And this book takes a fascinating angle. I mean, of course, things about the Holocaust come up, but he feels like he lived his entire life in his father's shadow. His father had this huge role in educating people about the Holocaust and fighting for recognition. And he's like, I'm just this cartoonist kid. You know, something happens like, oh, you know, I had a bad day at school. And, you know, my dad's like, you try being in, you know, Auschwitz. You try having, I had nothing but bad days. I mean, and it was, he looked up to his father. He loved his father, but it also made it difficult being that second generation and feeling like nothing you feel or experience is as important as what your parents did. Mm -hmm. Um, And and again, that's a story we don't talk about within the Holocaust. And it's one of the reasons I love uh, the power of memoirs and graphic literature when cartoonists tell these stories of their own lives. Because, I mean, if you sit down and you Google or you go to Wikipedia, you can read lots about the Holocaust. But the Holocaust had all these effects that people don't casually talk about, like, the psychological impact on the generation that came after. Mm-hmm. So, second generation, the things I didn't tell my father, by Michelle Kishka, uh, it'll be in the show notes. I think it's one of my favorites that I'm talking about today, and I heartily recommend it. Uh, it and it, the reason it's one of my favorites is it focuses very much on family, and I think seeing the family experience post Holocaust and how it affected family units. Uh, Is something worth talking about. So, next up, Irina. Now, this is about a lady who at one point was fairly famous. I don't think they've ever made any movies about her, though, which surprises me a little bit. But her name is Irina Sindler. Um, I believe her full name is Irina Stanislawa Sindler. She was a Polish humanitarian, she was not Jewish. She was accused of being a Jew lover and being interested in Jewish culture, which she might well have been. She worked for, well, she she had a very varied life. You know, she almost did this, but didn't pay, but didn't finish the exam. She almost did that. She jumped around a lot, but she really seemed to find her purpose with an organization called the Zagota. Uh, the Zagota was essentially a Polish association to try to help. Jews. Uh, I'm going to attempt to pronounce the Polish here for it. I'm probably going to do awful, but I'm going to try. Rada Pomocy Ziedom. And so this was a group that did things like try to go into the Auschwitz camps and bring food for people so they could actually eat. Now, this required cooperation from the Nazis and the SS, which was accomplished with some political pressure, but it was always very fraught with danger. Now, Irina uh, became celebrated, but actually a lot is not known about parts of her life. And the people who worked on the book uh, said in their notes for the book that they found it challenging because the more they read about her, they found stuff that was self-contradictory. So instead of attempting to create a hyper-accurate biographical work, they tried to get at what they thought was the spiritual essence, and they made some events up uh, in order to better tell the story. So this is much more fictionalized than the other works I've talked about so far, and I I do want to note this is published by Lion's Press here in the U.S. Uh, Lion Press is an interesting publisher. I, I really hope they keep doing more works like this. Now, the art style is very cartoony, very bright colors, You expect it to be funny and it's about children but the humor disappears quickly. Their lives are brutal and hard and Irina eventually is convinced to take the risk and start trying to smuggle children out. She and here the fictional story gives a specific impetus to this. We don't know why she actually decided to do this because it put Everybody else at risk. It, She had to have had the cooperation from other people in her organization because she put them all at risk when she did it. Mm-hmm. She ultimately saved over 2,500 kids' lives, smuggling them out. Some of them stayed with, for example, Catholic uh, uh, orphanages. Mm-hmm. She found Catholic orphanages that would take the kids in and pretend that they were Catholic kids. So... She did eventually get arrested. She managed to hide the papers. The SS were willing to let her go if they could get the papers to hunt down all the kids she'd hidden. She, was un- she never gave it up. Uh, she was kept in jail uh, and tortured. Repeatedly. Until she was released at the end of the war. And one of the things I find interesting about this and that I want you know, people to read up, and I highly encourage in this case, because they do sacrifice some historical detail for telling a coherent story, I do recommend uh, you go out to at least the Wikipedia article and read a little bit about her life. Uh, other resources, if you want to go deeper, would be great as well. But, you know, when when it's pointed out that people are bad people, and they do bad things, there's a tendency to say, oh, but not all And this that's that's very rarely constructive in conversation. When you have the vast majority of the people doing horrible things, saying, well, a few of them aren't like that, does it really help the conversation in a meaningful way, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, it usually prevents it from going forward. This does say that. This says not all were like that. I mean, here we see Polish people, Polish Christians who are risking their lives and are tortured but still do it to protect the Jews. Mm-hmm. Not all Germans, not all Poles were bad people. Mm-hmm. Some of them fought for what was right. Mm-hmm. But this does it in a constructive way because it relieves in the conversation the bad things the other Poles are doing. Mm-hmm. And To have a constructive conversation, you have to do that. So two more works I'm going to talk about very briefly. And this is going to be a short episode because I don't want to tell you what's in these in great detail. I want you to read them for yourselves. But the next one is by Casterman. Casterman um, is a publishing uh, imprint that often does work for, uh, 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 often publishes the works of a guy named Fabrice Hennof. Uh Henanoff likes painting his works. So these are uh, paintings and detailed drawings that he uses. As you can tell, he uses a very simple style with very washed out palettes. And he likes historical topics. Want to see was the conference, and it was very much a secret conference, where they decided on the final solution for the Jewish problem. The final solution being euphemistic speak for we're going to methodically plan out transporting them to gas chambers and committing genocide. Mm -hmm. And some people say, when they get into denial of things. Um, oh, you know, we have paper, we don't have a complete transcript from the 1C conference. In fact, the only one that exists wasn't supposed to because the guy running it believed he destroyed them all. And look, they say this and this, but they don't say that. Well, look, the reason they, destroy, they made an effort to destroy those records was that they knew they were doing something illegal and awful. Even under extant German law, it was illegal. Wait, wait, one of their, like, proofs that the Holocaust didn't happen was that the bad guys didn't write down they did a bad thing? Right. Isn't that more proof they did it? And they used euphemistic phrases that avoided things directly, and they had agreements on these terms because they knew that if they were recorded that they did not want to be caught talking about committing genocide and mass murder. And it is... This is a wonderful piece of history. Um, Henanoff researches his stuff in great detail. There are several great nonfiction books about this event. But basically, over the course of a day the leadership of these German departments agree on how to murder the entire Jewish people. And in a very clinical, you know, okay, well, let's look at Bob's PowerPoint. Bob's PowerPoint shows how we're going to transport the Jews. Okay. Now, Terry, Terry, can you show us uh, in excel your projections? Okay. So that's how much Zyklon B we will have to buy for the gas chambers. Can our supply chain handle that, Chris? Chris? Okay, great. And, I mean, this is the kind of talk, you know, they had. It was like a business meeting. Mm-hmm. And it was to them. Except it was for planning genocide. It's almost like evil people are evil. Right. Um, and the few people that had reservations about this basically knew they couldn't really object. Mm-hmm. That numbers. Yeah. And then the final one I want to mention um, is... From Jessica Bond and Peter Bertig, and it's Will Be Home, Will Soon Be Home Again. And this work was specifically uh, uh, triggered by Holocaust deniers, and it's published by Dark Horse Books. And basically, if you look at the gloss, the table of contents, their names Tobias, Lavaya, Selma, Susanna, Emmerich, Elizabeth. And then there's a timeline and glossary and some more reading resources. But the what happened was Bond found out these people were denying the Holocaust. And she said, I have my own personal story of the Holocaust. I mean, it happened. And she decided she wanted to tell that story. And she does. And then she went out to find other people who were children during the Holocaust. And those are what the other chapters are. They're literally the stories of these children people who as adults came forward and said, Yes, I was a child in the Holocaust and this is my story. I, I don't know why people who want to so adamantly say it didn't happen are doing this while we still have people alive from the Holocaust. Right. And and well, <laughs> what the Holocaust deniers like to say is things like Well, I mean, maybe a hundred thousand Jews got killed. I mean if you consider that important but, I mean, those millions you like to throw around, yeah, you're exaggerating and overstating it. I mean, th- th- that's the kind of argument they make. Um, while, in fact, we, we have reasons for those numbers. Now, I'm not saying that the highest number that exists for an estimate in the world is by definition right. Um, There are numbers out there that may very well be inflated, that may very well be unrealistically high. Um, However, if I were to look at one specific number and say, I think that's too high, I would do my own research into their primary sources to see where it came from, rather than be immediately dismissive. And considering that we're talking about an attempt at genocide, which was real, I sure as heck would be careful and and attempt to be very kind in how I point out my disagreement about the number. <laughs> and the number doesn't matter. Genocide was attempted. And well, I mean, the numbers do matter because of how many lives were lost. I mean, the impact matters. But you can tell by the way people stage these arguments. <laughs> Four and a half billion. Yeah, right. I mean, 100,000 Jews are dead, whatever. I mean, when they say things like that, you can tell, A, they're just trying to troll. Mm -hmm. And B, they want it to be insignificant. They're being dismissive because that furthers their sociopolitical goal of that they're Mm neo-Nazis. And they may not think of themselves as neo-Nazis, but congrats, if you're a Holocaust denier, you're a neo-Nazi. Um, And by the same token, if you claim the Rwandan genocide didn't happen, if you claim the Serbian genocides didn't happen, you're a bad person for those reasons, too. Sorry, that's just how it is. Yeah. So that's all I've got for today. We actually managed under half an hour for this one. But I wanted to give you this reading list, and I want to encourage you to go on reading it, to read the stuff. I'm going to have all the lists of this stuff, on the Comics Course website uh, tonight, the night we're recording, so it'll already be up there by the time anyone listens to this. All righty. So with that, I'm going to leave you, and I will uh, uh, maybe tell Rowan what this weird thing is in front of her. Is it a door? It's not a door. Is it a window? It is not a window. And with that, I will leave you attempting to imagine what she's seeing